Welcome to episode 82 of UConn 360. My goodness, that is the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Coming to you from the three corners of Connecticut, one corner of New York, I am Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts for this show. Joining me, as always, are my colleagues, Tyler Silverio. Tyler, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. I actually just uh, set up my new microphone from Christmas, actually, so uh, hopefully I'm sounding better now. You sound very smooth. Uh, and that was Julie Bartuka commenting on the smoothness <laughs> of the microphone. Julie, how are you? Hello. Good. How are you? Doing great. Uh, and Ken Best from the Mansfield Center Bureau. How are you, Ken? Good. We're up and running today. Excellent. So things are going pretty well here. You're listening to this in April, I assume, unless you you are somehow listening in on our conversations as we record it on the last day of March, which would be weird. <laughs> We're heading towards the end of the semester. A uh, lot to look forward to. We're going to have big in-person commencement. Things are going pretty well, and we have a really fun program for you this week. But we also have some news, some interesting, exciting news, and I don't want to make a cheesy joke about it. (laughs) But uh, Ken has some uh, dairy bar creamery news for us. Is that right, Ken? Uh, Yes. I think many of us are trying new recipes and doing new things in the kitchen at home since we're here so much. But so is the creamery staff at the Yukon Dairy Bar. Uh, They've been working on some things for sale that you can now purchase cheesemaking. Uh, Professor Dennis D'Amico in the College of Agriculture, Health, and Natural Resources and Creamery Manager Bill Chituro decided to develop and expand the creamery's existing artisanal cheese production. The cheese is made with fresh milk from Yukon's renowned dairy herd. Of course it's renowned. It's at Yukon. Professor D'Amico has used his knowledge as a food microbiologist and expertise in dairy technology to adapt part of the creamery's production facilities for additional cheesemaking. He has spent several years working with dairy farmers who have turned to artisanal cheesemaking to diversify their farm product offerings. The creamery has worked with Yukon designers to develop new logos and labeling for their products and the new offerings. The cheeses now available include queso blanco, a finished style bread cheese known as Eustolipa, at least I think that's how it's pronounced, and a cheese based on the classic American jack cheese. Dairy bars open Wednesday through Sunday from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m., and you need to order online, and there's about a 30-minute wait to pick up the orders. Now, the website is dining.yukon.edu slash bar, and there's hyphens between all those things at the end. Very nice. I'm going to pick up some of that cheese. I want to try some, too. Julie? You don't have any cheese news, but you do have some good news for us. I do have good news. UConn Gives, which is the big giving day the university uh, and the UConn Foundation have been running for the past several years, came back this year after a hiatus during the early days of the pandemic and raised a record $713,631. This 36-hour fundraiser, as I said, is run by the foundation and aims to get as many donors as possible to all different funds that support everything from student scholarships to cultural centers to athletics, campus beautification projects, and everything in between. Last time the event was held in 2019, more than $400,000 was raised by about 4,600 donors. So this year, the more than 5,100 donors kind of blew that out of the water. I just wanted to congratulate everyone involved and thank UConn Nation for their support. Great job, everybody. Very nice. Now, as you listen to this, we are just days away from a major conference at UConn all celebrating a famous album from the 20th century. Uh, and Ken, you're going to tell us a little bit about that album and about the significance of that. 
Uh, yes, on Friday, April 9th, UConn is hosting a virtual conference marking the 50th anniversary of Joni Mitchell's groundbreaking Blue Album. Joni Mitchell's Blue at 50, a celebration of her life in music, is sponsored by the UConn School of Fine Arts and the Department of Music and will feature internationally renowned authors, scholars, music critics, and performances of Mitchell's music by our students. The conference is open to the public. Many musicians and critics cite Blue as Mitchell's greatest album and is considered the culmination of her early recordings in a work unprecedented in its emotional and psychological depth, craft, and sheer beauty. Last year, Rolling Stone magazine moved Blue up from number 20 on its list of top American albums of all time to number three. And it's also the number one recording on the list of top Canadian albums of all time. With the conference, we'll focus on Blue, and we'll also celebrate Mitchell's music, artistic, and cultural legacy. Music professor Peter Kaminsky, who is a specialist in music theory, organized a conference with two of his doctoral students in music, Megan Lyons and Blake Taylor. I spoke with Professor Kaminsky and Megan Lyons about the conference. Blue, Blue is, is 50 years old. It's been recognized as one of the greatest recordings of the contemporary era. Why is that? Obviously, it's pointed to as her most confessional album. That came at a considerable personal cost to her because she says, I was going through a nervous breakdown during it and went through it after that. The aftershocks of the just nakedness and depth of the emotion on Blue surfaces in For the Roses as well. With Joni Mitchell, one of the things that I find so fascinating about her career is that so many of the artistic changes that she goes through are intimately connected to her personal life, what we know of that. So, for example, you bring up the obvious change of style that begins with the release of Chord and Spark. That's kind of in the histories of Joni Mitchell counts as the first of her kind of jazz-oriented albums. And of course, she records it with Tom Scott and the LA Express. But one of the reasons is that she basically was coming out of this very deep, dark depression and place and she did not want to be the sole focus of the music making anymore. The idea of playing with a bigger band and having a kind of a group collaborative creative project in the course of this was really appealing to her. Malcolm Aram is going to be one of our guest speakers. Her book, which is like three decades of interviews with Joni Mitchell at various times, one of those sets is taking place during the recording of Court and Spark. And she talks about the electricity that all of them felt in the recording studio, like they are doing something so different and so, so exciting. And that excitement was not only that, you know, Joni's getting into this sort of more jazzy mode because Tom Scott and the, the LA Express, they were some of the hot session musicians in LA at the time. But it's also just this cathartic moment for her of emerging from the intensity, what we're talking about here, started with an idea of what makes Blue such a great album. You know, I agree with what most people would point to, which is just the raw intensity of the emotions on every song. It shines through the famous photograph on the cover. This is, of all of her album covers, 
That's it. I mean, you just look at that and what kind of a feeling do you get? You know, you get a feeling of not only this amazing music, but what she had to go through to express this. What you're going to be presenting during the conference yourself, you're looking at the archives that just were released. These are previously unreleased recordings, which, of course, shows the development in a very early stage of, of an emerging performer who is starting to cope with these issues that she later articulates that culminate in blue. It's history that people haven't heard before. Megan, you want to take a sure. whack at that since you're the, you're the corpus queen? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, um, so the archives, this is, this is labeled volume one. So I'm anticipating we're going to you know, have another Joni archives release in the next couple years, hopefully, fingers crossed. But what we see is, Again, we don't like the term evolution, but we like to see her artistic journey throughout the archives. So we see her at first playing uh, her songs on radio stations, at local clubs, and she's covering songs. So she's doing folk tunes, traditional songs, um, some like Woody Guthrie is in there. And then you see her gradually incorporating her own original songs. So it's interesting because there is a lot of unreleased you know, original songs by Joni Mitchell, and we call those the the non-keepers. Uh, so those were songs that she decided not to ever publish, but then there are some early versions of her songs. So it's interesting, you see multiple versions of I Had a King, which Peter and I presented last year at the National Theory Conference. We see Song to a Seagull. There's a lot of these iconic Joni songs that appeared very early on, and then she kind of held on to them for a while before officially releasing them. But one moment in particular in the archives we've kind of honed in on it's around 1967 she labeled all of these tracks you know maybe it was uh, she played at the second fred or was on a radio station but there's one that's called a record of my changes and it's someone named michael's birthday tape and it's really interesting because what we've noticed looking and listening to the songs before and after this record of my changes is that that title is very literal this is a record of her changes. So we see this artistic change in her. And you know, we see this evolution from folk song to art song. And we also see what we're looking at in particular. This has been pointed out by Lloyd Weitzel in you know, many of his works before. She loves playing with like dichotomies and opposition. So you see like human and nature, uh, like urban, rural, positives, negatives, things like that. And what happens when she gets to this record of her changes is that opposition isn't just in the, the poetry and the lyrics anymore. Her music has this opposition in it. And this is where the alternate guitar tunings come in and, and everything just lines up. And that's what makes her music go to that next level. So we'll be talking in, in more detail about particularly Song to a Seagull, uh, which obviously was released later on, uh, Straw Flower Me, which was one of those non-keepers. And then also, I Don't Know Where I Stand, which is just an iconic Joni song. So that's a little bit of what we're going to be talking about at the conference. Putting a conference like this together takes time, energy, and a lot of thought. And when you're dealing with a complex subject like Joni Mitchell, how did you make your decisions on what you wanted this conference to be? There have been previous conferences. Everybody wants to make theirs a little bit different. How did you approach making this a unique conference for, for UConn? First thing I did was I actually looked at some commemorative conferences that have taken place recently. So there was a conference marking the 50th anniversary of Abbey Road, 
that took place in 2018 at University of Rochester uh, and Eastman School of Music. So I looked at their program. I looked at how it was put together. Some of the speakers that, that spoke at that conference are going to be speaking at this conference too. Nicole Biamonte, Tim Cousin both spoke at that as well. So I looked at their organization. It took place over several days. So I knew this was going to be a little, a little smaller scale that I wanted the conference to not only be about the single album Blue. That was the biggest decision. The Abbey Road conference was specifically devoted to Abbey Road. And I thought that even though the direct motivation for the conference was the 50th anniversary of the release of Blue, because as an artist, her career is so unusual and spanning such a long period and so many different phases at such a high artistic level on the one hand. And then on the other hand, I think how much appeal her music has to a pretty wide ranging audience. There are the, the music colleges and music theorists who have been discovering her music since the early 2000s. Lloyd Weitzel's book from 2008 called The Music of Joni Mitchell, I mean, remains one of the best, if not the absolute best, sort of musicological and analytical source. The guy is just brilliant, and the book is great. But because of our generation that was able to follow her through so many of the stages of the journey, as, as Megan puts it, I thought that there would be potentially a really strong audience for non-professional musicians, just people that happen to love her music. The conference has a group of international scholars presenting on everything from Joni Mitchell's poetry, her use of alternate guitar tunings, and as Megan Lyons noted, the first volume of the archival recordings released last year. There's also a panel discussion moderated by NPR's music correspondent Ann Powers with Malcolm Marum and Daniel Leviton, who are noted authorities on Mitchell and her music. And the conference website is Joni Blue Conference, that's all one word, dot wix site and that's spelled w-i-x-s-i-t-e dot com slash my site so joni blue conference dot wix site dot com slash my site and for members of the yukon community it's free how about that very nice julie i know you've been doing a lot of work with the school of social work and uh your story uh, is related to that yeah so i've uh, i've been the interim communications manager over there so Sorry that some of my, uh, I may be paying an inordinate amount of attention to School of Social Work, but it is a great school with doing a lot of great stuff. And I spoke to an alum. Uh, his name is Aswad Thomas, and he graduated with his MSW, that's a Master of Social Work degree, in 2015 with a concentration in community organizing. He is now Managing Director at Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, a flagship project of the Alliance for Safety and Justice, where he works to organize a national network of crime survivors to include those most commonly affected by violence, including young men and women of color, to help elevate their voices in local, state, and federal policymaking debates. Thomas knows a lot about this world. He grew up both in Hartford and in Highland Park, Michigan, which is part of Metro Detroit. And he had graduated from college in Chicopee, Mass, and was weeks away from traveling to Europe to play professional basketball when he became the victim of gun violence in Hartford. He also lost a friend to gun violence when he was young, and recently published a children's book based on his experience called The Stars Represent You and Me, about two young boys who hope to overcome their circumstances when one of them is killed. 
We talked about the book, his social justice work, and his time at UConn. People think Connecticut is a wealthy state, right? But where I'm from, Hartford, Connecticut, five minutes down the street from all of these huge corporations in downtown Hartford, which is a poverty-stricken community, have been plagued by violence for decades, and just didn't have a lot of opportunities for young Black men like myself to succeed. When my family moved to Highland Park, Michigan, my mother at the time thought she was escaping away from what was happening in our community in Hartford to go to Michigan, where we experienced the exact same things, a high rates of crime and violence, poverty, not a lot of jobs, a poor education. So I grew up in two communities that were you know, really riddled with systematic barriers that didn't provide a lot of opportunities for young Black men and women to succeed. But you did succeed. You went to Elms and you were about to go play professional basketball in Europe and there was an attempted robbery and you were shot twice. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. So how were you able to turn that into something positive? It seems like you took that and that has become your life's mission to prevent that from happening to people. Yeah, and it, it wasn't an easy process. I am not the person that I am today that I was in 2009. That was like the highest point of my life. I became the first male in my family to ever graduate from college. I just still remember that graduation day and seeing my mother, that, that smile that she had on her face as I was walking across that stage is something I would never forget. She's been on this journey with all my brothers to have her youngest son be the one to graduate from college was a just awesome experience. So I was like on an all-time high I was a very good uh, basketball player at Elms College, where I led the NCAA in steals per game. So that's uh, Division One, Two, II, and Three. I'm in the record books. Wow. <laughs> also, uh, top ten in assists and led our team to our first ever NCAA a tournament and, and a tournament victory. So 2009, I graduated, good basketball career, signed with an agent. You couldn't tell me anything, right? <laughs> I accomplished two of my dreams that I've worked so hard for since the age of uh, five years old. As I was preparing, you know, to go overseas to Europe, I wanted to spend that last summer in Hartford because I knew that when you go overseas to play basketball, you're gone for at least nine months out the year, August 24th, while just leaving the corner store in my neighborhood. I was a victim of armed robbery, which led to myself being shot twice in my back. And those bullets immediately ended my basketball career. And it it left me in a place of not knowing what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And just not having that support to help me deal with that was was a very, very tough experience. I still continue to to, to deal with um, today because of psychological and also the the physical effects of being a victim of gun violence. It it never um, goes away. It's with you for the rest of your life. Wow. It didn't take you too long to end up going back to school. Why did you decide to pursue your MSW at UConn? After I was uh, recovering, I started to uh, work at a Mass Mutual Financial Group in Springfield. I have a business management degree. I was working in the corporate tax department. My boss and I were talking about career development. Like, where do you want to be? Hey, you should go back and get your MBA. And I say, you know what? This is what's going to make me a lot of money one day. So, you know, this MBA is sounding real good. But then I started to think about all the work that I was doing in Hartford, Connecticut. And after my incident, there was one email that I received from this lady in Chicago whose family was from the greater Hartford area. And after my story was featured in the Hartford Current, she wrote me an email and saying, thank you for sharing your story. And I, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but maybe you should go back to school and teach or 
become a social worker or something. I just kept thinking about that email and, and she mentioned that you can have a greater impact of helping people in the community. And so I researched the UConn School of Social Work, which was seven minutes away from my house. I visited campus and I just fell in love with the social work program, being able to help individuals, families and communities you know, that are impacted by issues like violence, are impacted by things like the criminal justice system. I, I enrolled and it was a good experience my first year. My professor, John Bonelli, would had guest speakers who would come in and speak to the classroom. And I remember one gentleman by the name of Kennard Ray and another gentleman by the name of Daniel Durant. These were two African-American men who were leading the organization called Hartford Rising to help address the poverty and some of the challenges that were happening. So to see these two men who look just like me come to our classroom to really talk about the great work that they were doing in the community. I was really inspired by the two of them have you been working with the Alliance for Safety and Justice since you graduated? My second year at UConn, as myself and a few of my classmates were trying to get the University of Connecticut, especially the School of Social Work, to address racial justice on campus. We started to organize on campus students who were helping to address more course content related to the criminal justice system. We were advocating for more people of color to be represented on faculty. And also what we wanted to do was help to educate and inspire students at the Storrs campus. This is about the time where Michael Brown incident had happened, which UConn was very silent on that issue until a group of students with my leadership demanded the School of Social Work to address what was happening in communities across the country. And at the time, the dean did, after we put a little bit of pressure, did release a statement, which was awesome. So once again, second year during Black History Month, as we were educating people about criminal justice system across the country, California was one of those states that we were looking at for guidance on what states were doing to help address and reduce incarceration. We went on this organization's website, California for Safety and Justice, to see who was leading the efforts in California around criminal justice reform. And then we came upon Robert Brooks, which is our president today, who's also a graduate of the UConn School of Social Work. We got him to come talk about the great work he was doing in California around criminal justice reform. I had a class I had to go to, so I missed his entire talk. But Robert and I and a few others went out to dinner and he started talking about the work they were doing in California. And then he mentioned they have a program called Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, who were victims of crime, who are organizing in California to change policy. And for me, it was shocking to hear that there were individuals like myself who've been a victim of crime who were working to change policies related to criminal justice, but also to advocate for more services and resources. So I remember going home that night thinking, I want to do something like that in Connecticut. A few months later, Robert Wilkes called me and said, as well, we have the perfect job for you out here in California to join us and become our national organizer. I drove from Hartford, Connecticut, all the way to Sacramento, California to start my, my new career. Now I'm based in Atlanta, Georgia, not as far from family and friends. I run the flagship project of the Alliance for Safety and Justice, Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, a national network of victims of crime across the country that are advocating for you know, healing, prevention, and recovery over more spending on incarceration. Are there any major accomplishments during your time in that role that you are very proud of? One is helping to 
build this national network of victims of crime, primarily in communities of color, victims of gun violence, mothers and fathers who've lost their children to violence, victims of domestic violence and the sexual assault. In communities of color, those voices and those experiences have been excluded from criminal justice policymaking. Those communities have been excluded from traditional victim services. Being able to help build this network of helping people who experience the worst thing that you could ever imagine, who are taking their pain and turning that into action by organizing and building a community of support for people who've been neglected, who've been isolated. The second is the policies that we've won across the country with the leadership of our survivor network and our organization from Proposition 47 in California that changed six nonviolent felonies to misdemeanors. So in California, things like petty theft, forgery, low-level drugs. And as a result of that, over 1 million people were impacted. And so far, we've saved the state at least $150 million dollars that's not being spent in the criminal justice system, but are now being reallocated to communities for drug treatment, mental health treatment services for victims. In the state of Florida, last year we passed HB 7125, which is the Florida's most expansive criminal justice reform in the past 20 years, where our survivor network worked to extend the time limit for victims to apply for the Victims Compensation Program from one year to three years. And the time limit for victims to actually apply for the program they must file a police report in 72 hours, which is very challenging for many victims, especially sexual assault victims. So we extended that time limit also to five days and also worked on increasing the felony threshold in Florida from $300 to about $750 and also helping to modernize probation policy. Those policies um, have been a pretty amazing in addition to launching our trauma recovery center model which is a model that provides wraparound services for all victims of crime that target the most marginalized crime victims who traditionally don't access support. We've been able to launch 35 trauma recovery centers in states uh, across the country, and I'm continuing my advocacy to bring a trauma recovery center to the north end of Hartford uh, so that victims of crime there can access the support and services that they need as well. That's fantastic. You've certainly done a lot. (laughs) And you're working on a children's book. This tackles some of the heavy issues that you are passionate about and that you've gone through. So tell me about The Stars Represent You and Me. Yeah, The Stars Represent You and Me is not a traditional children's book or young novel. It's it's a book that touches on the real issues that happen in inner city communities. This is based on a true story of my best friend, Ruben, who was killed in a drive-by shooting when we were only 10 years old. This book covers my last week with him, where we we go on uh, adventures through the city. We are stumbling upon some cool landmarks in the city of Detroit. It touches on basketball talents at a young age. It touches on issues like poverty, drugs, and addiction. It touches on two young kids seeing their family members and and brothers impacted by incarceration and criminal justice system. So it touches on a lot of the issues that we often we don't talk about as young adults. And I'm hoping that this book will inspire other kids that no matter what you go through in life, do not give up and keep aspiring for your dreams and look to the stars for guidance. Often we don't hear the stories of what happens when children are affected by violence and the support that's needed as well. Because I remember when Ruben was killed in that drive-by shooting, we went back to school as if nothing happened. We didn't have any grief counselors come to our school. You know, We really talked about it in our household because our family didn't know how to talk about 
losing someone so young. And we really didn't have any place in the community to address losing someone to violence. And so this book will be a conversation starter for family with their kids, but also I'm hoping that schools and community-based organizations can use this book and will shed a light on the real issue that many of their kids are going through every day and they need some stars to help guide them through life. You can learn more about Aswad and order his book at aswadthomas.com. That's A-S-W-A-D-T-H-O-M-A-S dot com. Really good stuff. And unfortunately, a timely, kind of a perpetually timely story. There's actually a really interesting online panel organized by InShip at UConn about gun violence and more about that on UConn Today. I have a, a sports history. Actually, it's sort of a combination sports and social history piece Ooh. this week. You know, it's, uh, well, it's actually April now. It's no longer March Madness, but we've all just gone through the, the period of March Madness with basketball and hoopla and excitement. So I thought it would be interesting to go back and take a look at Harry Fitch of New Haven, who was the very first black player on the UConn men's basketball team. In fact, they were, we weren't even UConn at this point. It was, uh, it was 1932 when he arrived on campus as a freshman, a graduate, by the way, of Hill House uh, High School in New Haven, which is also where the alum who was the co-pilot of the Memphis Bell was from. Yeah, I was just going to say, that just came up, didn't it? Yeah, and, and Artie Shaw, too, so Hill House. And really, uh... Barry Berman. And Barry Berman. <laughs> Otherwise known as Uncle Barry. Uncle Barry. Uncle Barry, yeah. So uh, Harry Fitch was a standout basketball player. Actually, so was the Memphis Bell co-pilot. Anyway, he arrived on campus, a very popular student, was apparently very, a very good player, uh, although the team in those days was not that good. He was voted the outstanding athlete by the student body in his freshman and sophomore year. However... This is not quite a happy story because given the times, given the rarity of black athletes in New England in those days, he was subject to a lot of vile racist abuse by uh, opposing players and by the fans of opposing teams to the point where the beginning of games, the UConn uh, team captain, Cornelius Donahue, Connie Donahue, later went on to be a longtime Torrington High School basketball coach, would, would remonstrate with the officials and say, if the other team starts, starts in with the, the racial slur garbage, we're not going to play anymore. Wow. This came to a head in January of 1934, January 27th, 1934, when UConn was on the road. The Aggies in those days were on the road uh, playing against the Coast Guard Academy in New London. When they arrived, the Coast Guard Academy told them that Fitch could not play because the uh, more than half the student body at the Coast Guard Academy was from south of the Mason-Dixon line, and they would not accept a black athlete playing in their venue. So there was a, about an hour of debate over this, where the, uh, UConn was arguing, the Coast Guard was arguing, the, the officials were arguing. The University of New Hampshire actually had come down uh, for a boxing exhibition, and they had uh, a black fighter on their boxing team who was not allowed to fight. So their coach got involved and said, this whole thing is stupid. All the athletes should be able to play. And so eventually what happened is both teams suited up. The UConn athletes thought that the matter had been resolved, that uh, Fitch would be able to play. The game starts. Fitch is not in the starting five, which is a surprise because he was the best player on the team. And in fact, he does not play at all during the game. Coach John Heldman did not play him at all for reasons that were never quite explained. Hmm. Uh, this led to a lot of news coverage. And in fact, U.S. Representative Oscar DePriest, a Republican of Illinois, who at the time was the only black member of Congress, uh, gave a speech about this in Congress where he called this un-American accurately. The uh, two schools hastily issued a, a statement to the public where they just said there was, the whole thing was a misunderstanding and everyone should just forget about it. Oh, yeah. That's, we're good at that still as a country. Student Jules Pinsky, writing in the Connecticut campus, said of the statement, 
We would have thought a great deal more of that institution, meaning the Coast Guard, if they had come out with a frank, outspoken admission of guilt in the form of an apology to Harry Fitch. So after this, the, uh, the students once again voted Harry Fitch, the outstanding athlete of the student body. And this whole thing came at the same time as a real, a huge controversy over how the athletic program was structured. There was a Hartford Current story about this a few months back, and it's a good story, although they, they were sort of mistaken about the significance of this vote. The student body actually voted to fire the basketball coach, but it's a much more complicated story. The, the student body actually voted to fire every coach and the athletic director, and they got the uh, alumni association involved too, but it had more to do with sort of the structure of who was paying for athletic programs. Uh, it was a very, it's a very complicated story, but this did not help. This, this, um, this significantly... Uh, uh, um, damaged the popularity of coach John Heldman. And he, in fact, he left that year after that season. He went on to coach in Louisville, where he was only there for two years and both losing seasons. And then he kind of steps out of history. I couldn't find much more about him. It doesn't have a totally happy ending because Harry Fitch transferred after the season too. He went to American International College in Springfield, although his son, Brooks Fitch, who graduated from UConn in 1964, said the, uh, the decision was, was financial. And that Harry Fitch remained a fan of UConn basketball his whole life. Uh, Harry Fitch uh, passed away in 1984. So there you have it. Kind of a look at the way race relations were in that country. And some ways we've progressed and some ways we haven't. Yeah, I find that all very disheartening that we're still kind of maybe not exactly that explicitly, but still dealing with similar sentiments. Yeah. I've got a, a, a neat picture of the uh, 1933-34 men's team that I will post where... Um, and, uh, with their Aggies uniforms. What was their uh, record? You said they weren't very good. No, that also, I think, did not help John Heldman. He coached for four seasons. They were four losing seasons. Oh, I think John that year Heldman. they were four and ten. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Who did we play back in the, like... Well, we played New England schools. Like, we played Rhode Island. We played UMass. played, you know, New Hampshire, Vermont. But we also would play the Coast Guard. We also There was a, a game against the Alumni Association. That was like, an <laughs> official game every year. And when you think about it... Uh, if we, well, if they played the basketball alumni, that would that would actually be a pretty good game, you know? Right, right. Just um, any old alumni. <laughs> well, for years, uh, Coach Calhoun has brought his former players back for a charity event. So, well, that's that's yeah, that's a good game. That's a fun thing to to yeah. see all these all stars. But Not just back back alums. when the Aggies, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a little different. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Harry Fitch. Yes, known as Honey Fitch because he was a smooth basketball player. Nice. So if you enjoyed our our smooth episode, we're kind of the Honey Podcast, I would call us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's how I think of it. Yeah. We're, uh, we're not stretching a bit here? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think so. If you enjoyed this, you're, you're welcome to follow us on Twitter.com at UConn Podcast. You can also uh, follow the main underscore old account where I will post the picture of the men's team and also some some clippings that I found uh, from the era. Uh, and you can follow me uh, at TJ Breen if for some reason you want to uh, see me talk about uh, Steely Dan and then retweet uh, women's basketball tweets. Who was that guy that you were talking all about yesterday, the Watergate guy who died? G. Gordon Liddy. That was fun. Yeah, that was a fun adventure on your Twitter. <laughs> yeah, name checked in uh, Steely Dan's uh, song, My Old School. It all connects. It all connects. Well, having been through all of that, it wasn't fun when we were going through it. <laughs> no, although out of all the Watergate conspirators, conspirators um, G. Gordon Liddy is the most like a Coen Brothers movie character. <laughs> yeah, he held his hand up and put a light uh, match to it and 
or cigarette lighter, yeah. and just, oh, you just have to ignore it. Yeah, he, uh, he once ate a rat to get over his fear of rats. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so if you want to learn about that, yes, yeah, so if you want to learn about Twitter. that and, and see <laughs> see me retweet uh, uh, women's basketball articles, um, <laughs> Tyler, what about you? Hopefully, not so much G Gordon Liddy content in your social media. No, no, I post to uh, at UConn Fasa on Instagram. Uh, that's a social media for the Filipino American Student Association at UConn. Very nice. Julie, anything you want to tell the good people? I'm at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. I don't have much to say over there, but, you know, feel free to hurl your insults about the UConn 360 podcast my way. <laughs> compliments. Or feel free to give your compliments about yes, the, the smoothest I'm, honeyed podcast. I'm only joking. It's a callback, Tom, to uh, your instructions. <laughs> no, I want them to criticize you over the History Corner stuff. I, I feel like. <laughs> uh, Ken, what about you? Well, my adventure is going to be followed at uh, today.uconn.edu, where there is actually a story about the Johnny Mitchell Conference that you can take a look at. Uh, although you got all the good information already if you've if you've listened to us. And then on Saturday nights from eight to eleven p.m. on ninety one seven WHUS in stores, the Good Music Show, and I'll plug a show coming up on the seventeenth of April because we're on spring break and to give our friends over there a bit of a some time off. Uh, we're going to rerun a show I did uh, last year because we can't hear live music in concert. So I did three hours of live tracks, all concert performances, covering about 30 or 40 years. And it's lots of good stuff. So that'll be on the 17th of April, 8 to 11, 91.7 FM. All right. Thanks, everybody. And uh, let's meet back here in two weeks.